0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. Our rhythm at City Point Church, if you are newer with us this morning, we are just going paragraph by paragraph through the book of Colossians. We only have a couple of paragraphs left and so uh, I'm excited for today's paragraph. We have one next week and then one more the week of Thanksgiving and then we will be done with the book of Colossians and I hope and trust that as we have been sitting under this book and the authority of God's word that we have been shaped and changed through the words that the Spirit of God has superintended through a man by the name of Paul. Paul is writing this letter to a church in a a city called Colossae. Paul had never been to this church, he didn't know these Christians, he had never seen them or met them face to face, and yet we see on these pages just his pastoral heart and desire for them to know and to love Christ. And so we are just picking picking it up right where we left off last week. Before we jump into chapter 3 here, we're going to actually pick it up at the end of last week's paragraph in verse 17 in just a moment, but I wanted to say Uh, One word before we jump into this week's text, and that is that not everything in this week's text is going to directly apply to everyone in the room. And so you get to a text like this, and again, we're just working paragraph by paragraph through the Bible. And you would get to a text, and it addresses some very specific people with some very specific admonitions. And so you might be sitting in the room this morning, and you're a single adult, and here we're going to be talking about the marriage relationship, and you're thinking, that doesn't apply to me. Or maybe you are married, but you don't have kids, and you're you're hoping to have kids, but you don't have them right now, and so we're talking about the parent-child relationship, and you're thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me. And then for everybody in the room, we're going to be talking about the servant-master relationship, and it's like, well, that doesn't apply to me either. And so I just, I, I want to embrace that reality this morning. So what do we do with a text like this that doesn't necessarily apply in every in every point to every person. Well, as we read and study the Bible, allow this paragraph to shape your understanding of God. See His character in this text. Behold Him. Allow this paragraph to shape your understanding of the gospel. We've been journeying through Colossians, and the gospel has been changing people in this text. And then allow this text to shape your understanding of the home. Much of what we're going to be talking about is related to the home. So whether you are a single adult or whether you don't have kids yet, wherever you might be, there are aspects of this text that I believe that you can store away, tuck away, learn some things, maybe for even future reference. And so I've entitled this message from this paragraph, Household Rules. Household Rules. Rules. I think you'll see why in just a moment. Let's pick it up at the end of last week's chapter because I believe verse 17 is really going to frame where we're going into verse 18. Verse 17 of Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes to these Christians and he says, "...and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, through Christ." Verse 18. "...wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord." Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Every week, I give a big idea that sits over top of this text that I believe will help us to unpack what we're about to study. And so here's the big idea for this morning, if you want to write this down. Jesus, above all, which is the theme of the entire book, Jesus, above all, properly frames the rules of household relationships. When Jesus is preeminent, when Jesus is supreme, that reality of Christ, above all, frames The rules of household relationships. Everything in this paragraph is related to the relationships taking place inside the home. Even the last section, to the bond servants, as Paul calls them. These are household servants. Those who would would have been members of a home. They would have lived in the home and they would have served the home. So Jesus, above all, properly frames the rules of household relationships. Now I heard this past week that Uno has been posting some of their official rules on their Instagram account. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, but it's making some people mad because apparently many of us have been playing the game of UNO the wrong way. And so on UNO's official Instagram account, this is the, under the authority of UNO, this is what they said about their game. If somebody puts down a plus four card, you must draw four and your turn is skipped. You can't put down a plus two To make the next person draw six we know you've tried okay how many of you play this way i'm just curious okay all right you're wrong okay neil you're wrong that is not apparently how you play the game of uno according to uno well this has made some people particularly upset because they've been playing it differently one individual named Quintel replied to Uno and said, what about a plus four on a plus four, to which Uno's official Instagram account replied, no, to which Quintel replied back to Uno, you don't know how to play the game right. I think he's onto to something. If you have some time this afternoon, go to Uno's Instagram account and just read the thread. This thing has gone viral. People are not okay with Uno changing or telling them that they're playing the game the wrong way. Uno's not changing the game. We've been changing the game. Uno's just trying to bring us back to reality. So some of the viral responses under this thread here, Chums, whoever that is, said lies. (laughs) Susie's son said, we don't care about the rules. We play by our own rules. Somebody by the name of Ms. Fitz said, yeah, that sounds like you made that up. (laughs) Probably my favorite. This is Mickey McDeva responded to Uno and said, don't go messing up my childhood. I will literally drop a draw four on you, draw two, skip you, reverse back to me, and change the color in a two-person game. (laughs) Somebody knows how to play the game to their advantage. We were talking about this this past week, and Derek, who is quickly becoming our most favorite quotable staff member, said, I'm not going to let Uno tell me how to play Uno. (laughs) You know what it's called when you bring your own rules to the game? They're called house rules. House rules. Here's the problem. When everybody brings their own set of rules to the game, chaos ensues. We don't know how to actually play. We don't know what it should actually look like inside that game. We've been learning in the book of Colossians that the gospel changes everything. It it changes us theologically. It changes us practically. We are setting our mind on things above. Our orientation has changed. Our our relationship to sin has changed. The, The gospel is changing everything about us, but it's also changing us domestically. In other words, the home should look different because of the work of the gospel. And you could make a pretty significant argument in favor of this truth that the truest version of you is the version of you on display in your home. The truest version of you is not you with your friends. The truest version of you is not you with your coworkers. The truest version of you is with those who are closest to you. And so there must be a unified set of what I would call this morning gospel house rules. And so what Paul is going to lay out for us Is what the gospel should look like inside the home. How does the gospel influence and affect the way that the relationships that are closest to us work? And so Jesus, above all, properly frames the rules of household relationships. Here's what it's gonna look like. We've got really two questions that we wanna answer. First of all, what are the relationships? And secondly, what are the rules? What are the relationships in the home that are being changed by the gospel? And what do these rules look like that are now different because of the gospel? And so the outline is going to show us the relationships, and then the content within the outline are going to art- is-, is going to articulate the rules. So if you're keeping notes, just three points, because there's three relationships outlined in this text here. Jesus, above all, will properly frame, number one, our marriage relationships. Our marriage relationships. When Jesus is supreme, when Jesus is above all, it's going to properly frame our marriage relationship. I want you to see these two rules, verses 18 and 19. First to the wives, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Then he looks at the husbands and says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And so the first rule in the marriage relationship is spoken to the wives and he says, wives, you are called to submit. Now, why submission? Let's just be honest. That's a little awkward sometimes. That makes us a little uncomfortable, especially for the guy on the stage who has to tell the ladies what this means biblically. And the reality is sometimes this admonition and this call in Scripture has even been abused. By strong leadership in churches or misogynistic men who somehow want to take control and have control over women. And so they use a verse like this and they say, this is a command on you women and you must obey. But the reality is this is a call. This is an invitation to the women. So the big question is why? Why would submission be the call to the wife? And to answer the question why, you have to go back to the beginning. You have to go back to where this all began in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. What happens at the beginning is that Adam and Eve sinned against God. God created order and God placed order in the garden. He says that that order was not just good. He actually says that it was very good. But then Adam and Eve sinned against God. And in sinning against God, this curse ensued. And so as God is speaking both to the man and then to the woman about the results of this curse, he looks at the woman and he says to her in Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, there will still be the order in the home... But now your desire is going to be contrary to that. And that is a result of the fall. That is a result of the curse. And so now in the gospel household, what Paul is saying is to the women, there is this invitation to come back to what God has created and established in the home. And something is missed a little bit in the English version here. And that is the verb here to submit is in what's called the middle voice, which means that she is being asked to do this. There is volition involved in this she is being invited into this this is not being commanded to her she is being called into this in other words this doesn't work ladies apart from your willingness to do this and so just as jesus willingly submitted to the father to accomplish redemption's plan and just as the church willingly submits to christ to accomplish gospel mission so to the wife is invited to willingly submit to her husband to counteract sin's curse so that her marriage can accomplish creation's purpose. So really, marriage is a divine partnership. So this is not a vertical hierarchy, but this is a horizontal order in the home where the two are coming together, the husband and the wife, to accomplish what God has created for that marriage, which is to bring Eden to the world. So we have no right, we have, we, we have no authority reading into or reading out of this text what the Spirit of God did not superintend on this text. And so this is speaking, this verse, when it says wives submit to your husbands, this is speaking to wives specifically, not women generally. You understand the difference there? This, this again is not some call for, for all women to submit to all men. This is specifically wives who were called to submit to their husbands. As a matter of fact, Christianity elevates the role of women. Just study the life and ministry of Jesus, where Jesus was calling women to be his disciples. Women were disciples of Christ at a time when women were not even allowed in the temple. Women could not read publicly from the Torah. But Jesus is calling them to apprentice with him and to walk with him and to sit under his teachings and to observe his miracles and to participate in his ministry with him. Jesus oftentimes is seen going to the women first. He goes to a woman at a well and she is the first woman who is commissioned to make public the news of the gospel. It's a woman that is the first one told to go spread publicly that news. Everybody before that woman was said, don't make me known yet. The time has not yet come yet. But now to a woman at a well, Jesus says, you are the one who is going to go back to your city and make make this news known. I think of the early church, how women played such a prominent role in the early church. Phoebe was one of the first deacons to serve in the church. Priscilla, a woman, was seen discipling a learned and educated man by the name of Apollos. Priscilla, the woman, is discipling this educated man, Apollos, because he didn't fully understand the way of the gospel and the way of Jesus. And so God is using her. God used Lydia as the patron of the church at Philippi through her financial resources to provide a place for that church to gather. Philip's daughters were being used to prophesy and to speak the word of God over the congregation. And so as you see in the life of Jesus and in the life of the early church, the mission would not have moved forward if it had not been For the role that women played in the church. So this is not speaking of women generally as if they are inferior to men. By the way, this is not speaking of wives either as if they are inferior to their husbands. This is about order, not value. Galatians 3.28 says that in the gospel there is not Greek and Jew. There is not slave and free. There is not man and woman. In other words, there is a complete equality in Christ. We are joint heirs, the Bible says, with our wives, husbands. Joint heirs, equal heirs with our wife. And so this is about order, not value. No one would argue, no one would try to convince us that Jesus was somehow of lesser value than God, and yet Jesus submitted himself to the authority of the Father. Why? Because there was order in the Trinity. So it's about order, not value. But also, ladies, I want you to see something in here. In verse 18, it says, wives are to submit to their husbands, but then it says, as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, God is the higher authority in your life. Ultimately, this is not about you following your husband as much as it's about you following God. And what this becomes is it becomes a safety net. It becomes a protective measure. If there is an abusive husband who is somehow even trying to maybe take and twist and manipulate this verse to mean something that it doesn't mean, or maybe he doesn't even know God and is being abusive physically or emotionally or spiritually in any way, that now, women, your first priority of following is to God. He is the higher authority in your life. And for all the husbands in the room, we need to hear this as well. We need to hear this because we have a responsibility to lead well and to never lead in a way that would, somehow, that would somehow be against the will of God in the life of our wife. So God will hold us as husbands accountable for whether or not we lead well our wife because she is following and she is submitting as is fitting in the Lord. I would also say under this point that we should keep in mind that in a, in a parallel book in Ephesians, 5.22 where Paul also says for wives to submit to their husbands in the verse just before that in verse 21 he says that we are all to submit to one another. So in some regards yes the wife is called to submit to the husband in this order in the home but we are all husbands and wives men and women called to mutually submit to one another as well. So let's not talk about the one without also talk about, talking about and emphasizing the other. So the first rule of the home here is the wives are called. You are invited. You are invited by God into this partnership, this divine partnership with your husband. But the second rule then is now to the husbands. Verse 19, he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now this is different than the middle voice that's used for the women. This is the active voice. So men, we don't have a choice. This is not a call for the men to love. This is a command for the men to love. There is no higher level of commitment, care, and concern than love. You can't level up from love. Like, love is the highest level. That means that in order for you to love her well and to love her best, you you must be putting her first. Love counters any and all harshness, the word there is this idea of bitterness. So, husbands love wives and do not be harsh with them. When she doesn't meet some preconceived expectations, husbands, we are called to still love. When she's having a good day, we love. When she's having a bad day, we love. When she parks your car and rubs your rims against the curb and gives you curb rash, we still love. When she is embracing, listen, when she is embracing her weaknesses and limitations and communicating that to you, we love. And when she is exercising her strengths and her giftings that sometimes are far superior to yours, we love. Love is the highest call, which is why this is the command given to men and given to husbands. So, husbands, to love your wife, you must know your wife. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 3 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Guys, we're not always good at this. We're not always good at slowing down. We're not always good at listening. We're not always good at understanding. We just think, well, she's just different because she's a woman. Listen, we are called to live in a way that is loving, which means we must live in a way that is understanding. Love is gentle. Love is kind. Love is not quick to be angry. And love for the husband is not an option. So I want to give some application to this. And so I want to apply this. I want to apply this first point by giving you three practices of a Jesus-centered home. Three practices. If Jesus is to be, to be above all, this is going to frame, properly frame the relationships, the household relationships. And so what would be three practices of a Jesus-centered home or Jesus-centered marriage? Number one, I would say this, for the husbands and wives, prioritize worship. Prioritize worship. Prioritize your worship at home. Prioritize the time that the two of you would spend together both reading God's word, engaging with the scriptures, and praying together. Some of my favorite conversations with Amy is when we're just talking about what God is doing in our life, the things that the Spirit of God is whispering to us and the ways that we are growing and the things that God is shaving off of our life that don't look like him and the things that God is adding to our life that look more like him. And this worship at home, prioritize this as a husband and a wife, but also prioritize your worship at church. Being together, sitting together, singing together, worshiping together. You will have a lousy relationship with your spouse if you have a lousy relationship with Jesus. And so prioritize worship. Number two, the second practice of a Jesus-centered marriage is to focus on your role, not your spouse's role. In other words, stay in your lane. Wives, the call to you is to submit. Husbands, the command to you is to love. That's your lane. Focus on what God is, is speaking to you and saying to you from the Scripture. This isn't us going about trying to correct and change our spouse, but rather trying to be the person that God is calling us to be. And what I have found is that in a gospel-saturated home, there will be no leveraging of rights and roles There will be no reminding that, well, you're supposed to do this and the Bible says you're supposed to do this, but instead there will be a blending and really even a a blurring of those lines to the point that there is a mutual love and a mutual submission to one another. That is the beautiful thing that starts to happen as you focus on your role and what God is speaking to you from Scripture. Focus on your role, not your spouse's, but then the third practice of a Jesus-centered marriage is to celebrate strengths and support weaknesses. Some husbands are just lousy at keeping a budget, so stop keeping the budget, guys. Like, give that to your wife. That's a strength of hers. She's better with the bills. She's better with the numbers, so let her do that. Celebrate that strength. Sometimes a wife can can be critical of a husband's weaknesses. Ladies, don't be critical of his weaknesses and instead try to come alongside and support where there are some weaknesses because guys we have lots of them so support where there are weaknesses and celebrate where there are strengths my wife amy here on the front row one of her strengths one of her passions is theology she loves to study the bible she loves to study the deep things of god and to be honest i have heard some Pastors, I've heard some preachers get up, and I've thought to myself, Amy has a better understanding of the Bible than they do. Amy has a deeper theological understanding of the gospel than they do. And for some pastors and for some preachers, that might make a guy nervous. But you know what I have enjoyed so many times is dialoguing with Amy. And letting her stretch and strengthen me and my understanding. Even, even this paragraph, every single week I will sit down with different people and I will engage the text that I'm going to preach with them and maybe get some insight or some feedback. Do you want to know the person I got, that I got the most feedback from this week on this particular paragraph? It was Amy. Talking to her. and kind of wrestling through some of the more uncomfortable parts of this, and like, what does this mean, and how does this apply to the gospel, and how is this anchored in the book of Genesis, and what God was doing there in the home, and what it means for us today. And I lean into that. Why? Because that's a strength that she has. That doesn't need to be an insecurity on my part that, well, I'm the one that's got to get up and give this message, and so, you know, whatever you have to say, that's just going to have to be kept to yourself. That would be foolishness. As a husband, as a wife, you are a you are partners together it is a partnership not a competition listen you are on the same team stop fighting against and start fighting for and with each other so celebrate those strengths now before i move to the second point i just i just want to recognize the reality that some of you in this room you are here by yourself and you wish that you had your spouse next to you. You wish that your spouse was, was not distant from God or disconnected from God or disinterested in God. And if that's you this morning, can I just encourage you with these same three points? Prioritize your worship. You and God. If, if he or, or she is not doing that with you, you still do it. Prioritize you and God because as God shapes you, it's going to make you into a better spouse for your husband or for your wife But I would also say, focus on your role. Don't criticize and critique and and, and try to get upset because he or she is not doing what, what you see in Scripture. Instead, focus on your role and then celebrate the strengths and support the weaknesses. All the more reason why these three things should still be a priority in your home. Peter says to the spouse that it is possible that your spouse will be won without a word by your conduct. That's the difference that you can make in your home if that's you this morning. Jesus, above all, will properly frame our marriage relationships. Number two, Jesus, above all, will properly frame our family relationships. Two more rules here, one for the children and another for the father and the parents. So the first rule of this relationship is directed to the children. He says in verse 20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now the word children there is a very broad term that could mean even all the way up into adult children. Children who were still in the home. So that's not just kids that this morning would be over in City Point kids, but this could be teenagers and even college students and even adult children that there, there there is still this understanding of obedience while you're in the home. Children, obey your parents in everything. Now, in the Greco-Roman culture, at the time in which this writing would have been written, children were just considered property. So the very fact that Paul is speaking into the house churches and addressing the children is elevating their value in this gospel home. So he says to the children, this is your responsibility. This is your instruction to obey your parents in everything. It's an all-inclusive obedience when he says in Everything now, no loving, God fearing parent would ever abuse that call and instruction to their children. This instruction here is for them to obey in everything, but parents, our responsibility is to teach and to nurture and to protect, but it's also a God honoring obedience. He says, For this pleases the Lord. This is similar to when he speaks to the wife. When, she, when he says to her, as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, to the children, you are, you are obeying your parents as you are obeying God. So understand that. So that first rule to the children. But then he talks to the fathers. And I would even say that this is even more broadly relatable to the parents. Because again, in, in Greco-Roman culture, when they would address the fathers, it was a, it was a, uh, a mutual joint responsibility, and it was expected that this would not just be for the fathers, but also for the, for the mothers, for the parents. And so this rule for the parents is that the parents are warned to be gentle. Parents are warned to be gentle. I want you to see it in verse 21. He says, Fathers, do not provoke. That means to stir up or to challenge your children, lest they become discouraged. Anyone in the room who is a parent this morning, you understand that Children are a gift. They are a gift from God, and oftentimes the stewardship of that responsibility that we have is fragile. And they look up to us, and all it can be is a word or or a spirit towards them or a reaction in a moment, and we can crush their spirit, and they can be discouraged. And so this particular verse, as a dad this morning, hits me between the eyes. And so you are welcome to listen as I preach the next segment of this to myself. And hopefully you will learn something as well. But I have found oftentimes as I come back to this verse, the Spirit of God just challenging me and warning me that my responsibility as a parent is not to provoke, not to stir up in any way that would discourage or harm the spirit of that child. So how do parents, and sometimes specifically dads, provoke their children to discouragement. I listed several things here, ways that parents, sometimes this is not exhaustive, but sometimes these are ways that we can provoke our children to the point of discouragement. This can happen when we are impatient. When we told that child three, four, and five times to brush their teeth and they're still staring at the wall. (laughs) They've still forgotten to do what we told them to do. We can provoke a child when we as parents are perfectionists because we told them to go mow the lawn and those lines are not as straight as they would have been if we had mowed the lawn. And there's some tufts of grass that they missed and all of a sudden our perfectionism is now causing us to get upset at them. We can provoke a child when we transfer our own frustrations onto them. Maybe that electric bill was a little higher than you were expecting and you're frustrated, but now you are transferring that frustration to a child who had nothing to do with that electric bill, and now you are provoking them to the point of discouragement. We can provoke our children, parents, when we get angry at them. It may not even be because of something that they did, but now they are the easy outlet for our anger, and so we just blow up on them because we're angry. We can provoke our children when we are absent. This is huge when we are just not in the home, or maybe we're in the home, but our minds are somewhere else. Sometimes that overtime just isn't worth it. Sometimes it's a good practice to come home and just put the phone away. Put it down, parents, dads, moms. Be in the room, be in that space with the child. Well, they've got their, they've got their Xbox, they've got their video games, they've got their YouTube that they wanna watch. Listen, turn that off and turn your phone off and go outside and play catch and go to the park. And be together and be present in the life of your child. Because whether they express it or not, there may be a provocation that's taking place in their heart. They're being provoked because that phone or that job or that other thing is of greater priority to you than they are. We can provoke our children, parents, when we are emotionally unhealthy ourselves. Part of our responsibility is to help our children become emotionally healthy. But if we are not at a place of emotional health, we can't bring them to that place. And so making sure that we are where we need to be and getting the help that we need to get ourselves where we need to be so that we can properly lead them to a gospel-centered place of emotional health. Sometimes we can provoke our children when we are just being hypocritical. Boy, kids have a way of seeing through inconsistencies, don't they? calling you out on something that you were just calling them out on. So what do you do, parents, when you listen to a list like that and you know in your own heart that, man, I have just blown it time and time again? Maybe you blew it this morning. Maybe you blew it last night. Maybe you blew it this week. The best thing for you to do as a parent is to sit down with your child and tell them that you were wrong. Admit your own mistake and ask for their forgiveness. Apologize to your child for the way that you provoked them to the point of discouragement. You say, that seems like that's like weakness or not bad parenting. Listen, that will be one of the best parenting moments that you have. When your child sees you in your own weakness and in your own frailty and in your own need for forgiveness and in your own need for the spirit of God to come in and shape you in those areas where he has not yet shaped you. They will see, oh, mom's not perfect. Oh, dad's not perfect but they're following after Jesus. That will be a powerful moment. If you've blown it, own those mistakes. So I want to apply these two rules. I want to apply them in a similar way that I did for the first point. So let me give you three more practices, but this time practices of a Jesus-centered family. Practices of a Jesus-centered family. Now the only time in my life when I was an expert at parenting was before I had kids. So I am not trying to claim this morning that somehow I am an expert at this, but here are some things that I have picked up along the way. These are some tips that have helped me, that others, others have instilled in me, that I hope might help you if you're a parent this morning. Practices of a Jesus-centered family. Number one, prioritize worship. See, boy, that sounds a lot like the first three tips that you were giving. That's because it's the same prioritize worship in your home moms and dads prioritize your time with Jesus now listen you don't have to sit down and give a big idea and three points and a learning to live question you don't have to think that it has to be some formal 45 minute explanation of a text where you get into the middle voice of the greek language you don't have to do that but remember this something is better than nothing something A verse, a chapter from a kid's devotional book that you read together. Something is better than nothing. Sitting down as a mom and a dad and prioritizing that time at home, but also not just prioritizing worship at home, but prioritize worship collectively in the church. Parents, do you know what your kids need to see you doing? They need to see you worshiping Jesus as we sing. They need to see you with your Bible open. as as the preaching is going on. They need to see you taking notes and writing some things down. They need to see you prioritizing that time in your life group. They need to see you prioritizing Christ in your life and in your home, not just privately, but also publicly in the corporate gathering. And let me just say this morning, be very, very careful of the lie that your kids need sports more than they need Jesus, or that your kids need that dance class more than they need Jesus. Or that your kids need the extracurricular on the weekend that keeps them out of church more than they need Jesus. Because you are communicating something to them. That doesn't mean that you can't do sports. That doesn't mean that you can't do dance. That doesn't mean that you can't do those extracurricular things. But listen, there must be a priority of Christ first. Jesus above all. Even in the very practical areas of your home. Jesus above all is not just for your eternity and not just for your sanctification and the way that you live your life, but it's also Jesus above all in your family. So parents, prioritize worship for your family. Number two, don't just shape their hands. Shepherd their hearts. Don't just shape their hands. This is not about behavior modification. Although, if I could be very honest this morning, behavior modification looks very tempting sometimes. And sometimes it's even easier. Like, here are the rules. Do these things and don't do these things. And when you break one of the rules, there will be consequences. That's behavior modification. That's just shaping their hands and what they do. But we are called to something more. The gospel in the home calls us as parents to shepherd their hearts. What have we been learning from the book of Colossians for our own lives, adults? We've been learning that God wants us to, wants to shepherd our hearts. That God wants us to form us into the image of Christ. And it's no different when it comes to our parenting. Our kids are little image bearers. And so we are not just trying to shape what they do and change what they do and get behavior modification out of them and stop doing those things that that don't line up with our list of rules in this house and stop doing those things that irritate me. That's not just what it's all about. There's something underneath. There is the heart of the child that must be shepherded into the likeness of Christ. And the means to that end is the gospel. Shepherd their hearts then thirdly, disciple during regular routines. This is a practice of a Jesus-centered home. Disciple your children during regular routines. 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 What does that mean? That means something that you do every day, like eat breakfast, have bedtime, whatever that routine is, brush the teeth, get in bed, tuck them in, kiss them goodnight. There are routines that you just do. The drive to school what I'm, what I'm encouraging you to do is to disciple your children during those regular routines because those are powerful, regular, ongoing moments in the life of that child. We started doing something recently in our home, maybe, maybe a couple of months back, three or four months ago. Every time we sit down at dinner, which I think we do that all together, maybe five times a week, maybe maybe, maybe more, maybe a little less, but at least we're kind of hitting it at about five out of seven where we'll sit down and have a meal together. And when we have that meal, we take a moment to do our rose and our thorn. We go around the table and everybody shares the best part of their day and the worst part of their day, their rose and their thorn. And the first thing that this does in a house full of all boys is it just sort of gets everybody settled down a little bit and lets us learn what it means to speak one at a time. And so they'll start going around the table and they'll say, this is the best part of my day and this was the worst part of my day. And sometimes with our four-year-old, we get two best parts of his day. You know, sometimes they mess it up. Sometimes the worst part of the day was just a moment before when they were like fist fighting and now another fight ensues at the dinner table because they just reminded the brother of what they did. It doesn't always work out perfectly. But what I have found is that there are discipleship moments in that routine discipling your children in the routines, the regular routines of life. It might just be every time you sit down to have that bowl of cereal, I know you got five minutes before they got to get out of the door and go to school. But in those five minutes, you're going to open the Bible and read one verse. That's just discipling during a routine. Or maybe it's the drive to school. And as you pull up to the school, one of the routines is every time you pull up into the school, you have a a moment of prayer where you pray over your child and ask God's blessing on your child as they're about to get out of the car. Or maybe it's the bedtime routine. These are some of my favorite moments. That time of prayer. As you are praying, as a parent, you are praying blessings over your child. Don't ever underestimate the power of your prayers over your children. Sometimes our kids will take advantage of those moments and we're praying and we get done and then they have a question and they want to talk about something. And as a parent, you know, honestly, it's tempting sometimes to be like, I want a little bit of me time and putting you to, the, to, to bed is the end of the you time and the beginning of the me time. And so I'm not sure I want to have this conversation right now. Can we just save this for the morning? Can I encourage you? Resist that. Resist that temptation to close out the you time and to start start the me time because some of the conversations that are about to start in that moment are some of the sweetest, most shaping discipleship moments that you're going to have as a parent. But lean into those times of routine. These are practices of a Jesus-centered family. If I could just say before I move on from this point, I want to talk to the dads for a moment. The dads in the room, I want to encourage the dads, lead out in your home. Lead spiritually in your home. The value that your wife brings to this is incredible, but I'm just calling on the dads to be the initiators and to be the leaders in this area. I know this maybe is a little cheesy, but I want you to be the the thermostat, not the thermometer. I want you to help set the temperature and not just read the temperature, dads. Lead out in this. I want to say a word to the single moms this morning. You're either a single mom or maybe you're a mom with one of those husbands that's just disinterested in anything I'm talking about right now. If that's you this morning, I want to say two things to you. First of all, you are loved. And secondly, you are not alone. You have a church family. You, you, have, you have men in this church that can pour into your children and can disciple into them. That doesn't mean that, that you are not. You are absolutely pouring into them and everything we talked about is something that you are leading in and doing on a very regular basis. But I wanna encourage you to lean into some of the men that God will be bringing around your children in this gospel community and, and, and allow that influence in the life of your children. But then I also wanna speak this morning to the empty nesters and to the grandparents in the room. If that's you today, I want you to find a child. I want you to find a teenager. I want you to find a college student. And I just want you to be their spiritual parent, their spiritual grandparent. Pour into them. Pour into them what God has taught you. You might be thinking, boy, I don't know that I've learned a whole lot along the way. I've I've gotten a whole lot of things wrong. I'm not even proud of the way I raised my own kids. Listen, don't believe those lies. You are valuable and you are here And so God wants to use you if you're a little bit older and your kids are gone to pour into the kids in this church and the teenagers in this church and the college students in this church. That's one of the beauties of of a gospel-centered, multi-generational church is that we need each other. Jesus, above all, will properly frame our marriage relationships and our family relationships. Thirdly, And finally this morning, and admittedly this will be the shortest point, Jesus above all will properly frame what I'm calling our working relationships. The context of what I'm about to read is something that is very different from anything that we would even understand from even our more modern uh, American history when it comes to slavery and servanthood. These servants, these slaves would have been members of a home. They would have lived under that roof. They would have served that family. Obviously, the application from this final portion of the paragraph is a lot less applicable. But I will also say that this is not meant to just be sort of generally applied to like employment and working relationships outside the home. Because Paul is specifically speaking to the relationships that would have been inside the context of the home. So understand that these are the people that Paul is talking to. And I would even say that the large portion of the admonition here is given to the servants. And I believe that's because most of the people that Paul would have been speaking to would have been servants. They would have been coming to faith in Christ, and they would have been in that position. It's only one thing said to the wife, one thing said to the husband, one thing thing said to the children, one thing said to the fathers, but then multiple things said to the servants. Look at it with me, verse 22. He says, Bond servants, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Let me just say that modern American slavery was an egregious sin. And it, and it was a dark blot on our American history. And what we're seeing here in ancient slavery was different in many regards. And one of, one of the main ways that it was different was how someone became a slave. Sometimes it would have been somebody who was a prisoner of war or maybe somebody who was serving a prison sentence and this was part of their prison sentence. They had stolen something or they had wronged someone and so now they were enslaved to that person for a period of time. Other times, someone would have been impoverished and they would have actually, of their own will, sold themselves to a home to serve that home because that home would have also provided a place to sleep and to live. It would have provided food. For others, it was just good economics. People had a skill. Maybe they were a a cook or a chef or a doctor and so they would have sold themselves to a home and their services to that home and so think of this maybe a little bit more if you've ever seen the show Downton Abbey maybe a little bit more of that style of servanthood where they lived in the home and they served the home but the home also was their means of livelihood and so as Paul is speaking to many many Christians who would have been in that role He says this to them. This is the rule to the servants. Servants are exhorted to trust. To trust. And their trust is not in their earthly master. Their trust is to their heavenly master. Their trust is in God. He says to these servants, your obedience is for God. He says, obey in everything fearing the Lord. Then he says, your hard work is for God. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Then he tells them that your reward is from God. He says, from the Lord you will receive. And then he tells them that your protection is from God. If there's any wrongdoing, if your master has wronged you in any way, he's reminding them, as Paul tells the church at, at Rome, vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay. And so what God is saying to these servants is he's saying, I see you, and so trust me. But then he speaks to the master's. This is the first verse of chapter 4. And the masters, this is the rule for the masters. Masters are charged not to discriminate. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, treat your bondservants. Listen to this. This would have just revolutionized the entire system. He says, treat your bondservants justly, that means righteously, and fairly, that means equally, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, masters, you're not in charge. You are serving a greater master as others are serving you. And so keep that in mind. You must be just toward your servants and you must be fair and equal towards those servants. So imagine two potential situations. The first is where you have a believing servant who is serving an unbelieving master And then you have a believing master who has unbelieving servants. What's going to start to take place if they are living according to these gospel house rules? Well, the first thing that's going to start happening is that unbelievers are going to become believers. Because what's being modeled in front of them is a Christ-centeredness. But also, especially for the masters, any and all injustices in the system are going to disappear. Because now the masters who have the greater authority in this relationship, they are being called on to be fair and equal so there won't be injustice. So in other words, don't try to abolish the system from the outside, transform it from the inside. Now what's the application? Part of my responsibility every week as I teach is to build a bridge, to build a bridge from the text to your life. What's the application here? Well, I wrote this down. Live the gospel to change the culture. Live the gospel to change the culture. Embody the gospel. Let the gospel change you. Because that's what Paul is saying to these servants and to these masters. Be changed by Jesus above all. And then ultimately, the result of that is that there will be changes in the system. There will be changes in the culture that come from it. Some Christians live like they're revolutionists. I can't keep up with all the boycotts, folks. I don't know if I'm supposed to be boycotting Target still or, or Starbucks or Disney or what's next or like Disney Plus or I don't know. Don't tell me what as a Christian I'm supposed to boycott because I'm probably not going to do it. There's like these revolutionists that want to come in and they just want to like revolt against the system and they think that's going to somehow bring the peace of God on earth. But then others, they're not revolutionists, they're isolationists. They just kind of want to hunker down until Jesus comes They want everybody in their life to be a Christian. They want they want Christian teachers to teach their kids. They want a Christian dentist. They want a Christian mechanic. Like they want everybody in their life to be a Christian. They want to isolate from everything that looks like and smells like the world. We are not called to be revolutionists and we are not called to be isolationists. We are instead called to be gospel conformists. Where the gospel has implanted itself in our heart and changed us on the inside and is now conforming us not to the image of the outside world, but to the image of the inside Christ. And we are being conformed to the gospel, which now means that we go out into the world and we live differently. And so now the culture and the world around us has changed because of the change that has taken place on the inside. So, we're not trying to destroy the system and we're not trying to isolate and hide from the system. We're living differently inside the system. So, next week's paragraph, we'll read in Colossians 4 right after this paragraph walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so, what I would say to you this morning is go get that degree. And go in, and go, into, go into that secular workforce and work that job. And get involved in that fitness class at your local gym surrounded by people who are not followers of Jesus. And get involved in politics where you're interested. And, and get involved on the school board. And, and get involved locally and do those things. And get involved in the culture and the society around us. And as you are there, live differently. Live changed by the gospel. Because through that change that Christ has done in you, the gospel will now come to the world. And so Jesus, above all, this is that big idea. Jesus, above all, properly frames the rules of household relationships. I understand that maybe a lot or even most of what's in this text may have not applied to you specifically today. But I think even as we see this, we start to understand the character of God. We are not here to bring all of our own rules and to tell tell God how he's supposed to play the game. There will be chaos if we all just sort of come with our own rules on how the house is supposed to work. But instead, God says the rule to the wife is that she is called to submit. The rule to the husband is that he is commanded to love. The rule to the children is that they are instructed to obey. The rule to the parents is that they are warned to be gentle. The rule to the servant is that he is exhorted to trust. The rule to the master is that he or she is charged not to discriminate. And So let's allow the gospel to change our homes. We want to learn to live this morning. And so I want to conclude with three questions that I believe will help us make application and help the Spirit of God make application in our lives from this text. Number one, my first question is this. Are you first a member of God's family? Are you first a member of God's family? If you are trying to fix your family without first being fixed by Jesus, it will fail every single time but God first wants to change you. If you have not yet turned to Christ and turned away from your sin and trusted what Christ has done on the cross as the full payment for the full penalty of your sin, do that today. Trust Jesus today. Let him fix you and then the fixed you will then go and live a changed life in your family. Number two, what practices do you need to start to put Jesus in the center? I gave two different lists. One, practices for a Jesus-centered marriage. Another, the second one, practices for a Jesus-centered family. What practices need to start being implemented in your home to put Jesus back at the center? And then number three, where has God placed and positioned you to live differently? You are going to go somewhere this week. You are gonna leave this room in a few moments and you are going to live a life outside the walls of this church. But you are still the church, and the Spirit of God is within you. And you are not called to be a revolutionist or an isolation, uh, isolationist. Instead, you are called to be a gospel conformist, that you are conformed to the gospel. And now the change that has taken place on the inside is changing how you live on the outside, and through the relationships that God will bring into your life, you will have an opportunity to share the good news of Christ with people who are looking at your life and seeing that you're different and you're not like everybody else around. And through that, you will have an opportunity to talk about Christ and his good news of the gospel. Let Jesus change you, not just theologically and not just practically, but even domestically inside your home. Can we pray together? Father, we thank you for a few moments that we've had. And maybe even a few longer moments than normal to study a text. Portions of the text may be a little bit more challenging, maybe a little bit even more confusing at first glance, but I pray that your Spirit has just taught us and ministered to us today and helped us to understand that you have rules for the home, and each one of us have a part to play. And we cannot live according to your plan apart from the power of your Spirit so, God, we invite you to do whatever you need to do in our hearts this morning. If there's somebody here this morning that has not yet put Christ first, and they're not yet a part of your family, I pray that today, by faith, that they would trust in you. And we'll thank you for what you do. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at CityPoint Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at CityPoint Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.